Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a chaplain, a professor, a writer, and a speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters to help you lead better. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today we are going to be talking about Christmas questions and Christmas ministry. Christmas obviously is right around the corner, and so we thought we'd do an episode to offer some thoughts on Christmas controversies and also how to use the season for ministry, including things like processing grief at Christmas time. So, Aaron, at Christmas, social media is ripe with pro and anti Christmas Christians debating various aspects of the season. And so we're going to identify a handful of these topics and get you to comment on them. So this is going to be a lot of fun, maybe some controversy here. Does Christmas have pagan origins? That's where we want to start. All right. Yeah, it might be fun for people if they're driving and uh, maybe they're they're listening to the podcast with family members to to say this 10 times fast. Pro-Christian Christmas Christmas Christmas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a tongue twister. Pro-Christmas Christians. Pro-Christmas Christians. It is a bit of a tongue twister, but yeah, thanks for the question. So best as we know, and it is true that many people say, I don't, I'm not interested in celebrating Christmas because it has pagan origins. And you can go online and Google and you're going to get people saying that Christmas trees have pagan origins and December 25th is the worship of the sun god and all these sorts of things. But if we go right back to the beginning, obviously what we're celebrating, the event that we're celebrating on Christmas is biblical in nature, the birth, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that whether we call it Christmas or some other thing, that the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is a historical fact and is one of the foundational stones to our Christian faith. Now, the early Christians, as best as we can tell, didn't celebrate Christmas per se, as a once-a-year holiday. They were obviously worshiping Christ, worshiping Christ, the Christ of what we call Christmas on a daily basis. But it really wasn't until about the fourth century, best as we can tell, that Christmas started to become more of an event, a, a, a holiday, a celebration on a specific day. And that's because, in large part, when Constantine became a Christian in the 4th century, in the 300s, uh, he obviously wanted to bring the Christian faith into the public sphere. And one of the ways that you bring faith into the public sphere is you, you start Christian institutions, you you incorporate Christian values and beliefs into your, your legal codes, you promote public worship, you have celebrations and festivals to promote your faith. This is why in Brampton, Ontario this week, there was a big article put out about this giant monkey god statue that was built in Brampton, which the the Hindus uh, see as a, an idol. And there's a reason why you erect giant monkey gods in an area that's predominantly Hindu, because it's a public manifestation of your faith. And Christians have done this too. And there's nothing innately wrong with public manifestations of the Christian faith. So Constantine presumably would have wanted to see Christian identity brought into the public eye. So purely from uh, that perspective, Christian celebrations were strategic 
uh, one could even argue they have a, a certain missionary value to them. And they, I, I think Christmas, for example, uh, while it's not mandated that we celebrate it on December the 25th, or really any specific day of the year, is an evangelistic opportunity. It's an opportunity to highlight our worship and the kingship of Jesus Christ through a public celebration in, in our country and in many others. So in the Word of God, it's certainly not uh, forbidden, and nor is it commanded that we would celebrate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ on a specific day. I'll say this again. We are commanded to celebrate mm -hmm. and worship the incarnation event just like the shepherds did, just like the wise men did. In the biblical narratives, in the Gospels, there's a precedent set there whereby early believers worshipped the baby in the manger. So worshipping the baby in the manger is is fair game. But when we're talking about a specific celebration or event on a calendar, be it December 25th or January 6th or whatnot, it's not forbidden and it's not commanded. But I do think it has great value for ministry if it's properly commemorated and uh, celebrated. Uh, plus, it's a little bit strange in a culture like ours, in my mind, to, to turn it back over to the pagans. The pagans are working pretty hard to repaganize Christmas mm -hmm. by excluding Christ from Christmas, by changing the vocabulary, by making it a, a holiday, a family event. We notice even the reduction in the usage of language like Merry Christmas yep. in favor of happy holidays. But even then there's a little catch because a holiday is a holy day. Oh, <laughs> That's the origin of the word. But So it, it's not... Uh, no, Christmas does not have pagan origins, to answer your question directly. Mm -hmm. It's not commanded that we celebrate it in Scripture. It's not forbidden that we celebrate it in Scripture. But I do believe it has a public benefit and a Christian benefit by using it as an opportunity to um, present to the world uh, the hope of the world, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The listeners might be interested in knowing that in the first 10 or so years of my life, I never celebrated Christmas. At the time, my parents were opposed to it. They were part of a closed brethren assembly. And as part of that church, people did not celebrate uh, Christmas. I don't recall if we celebrated birthdays. That's ambiguous in my mind. But we didn't celebrate mm. Christmas. And I didn't miss it because I really wasn't aware of it. Uh, but around the age of 10, I guess my parents buckled and uh, from there forward, we, we did celebrate Christmas. And I, I don't think my life's become more pagan <laughs> as a result. I think I've experienced many blessings uh, mm -hmm. in the 40-some-odd years of Christmas celebrations that I have enjoyed. In the West, specifically in, the, in North America, Christmas has been celebrated with greater intensity since about the mid-1800s up mm -hmm. to the present. Prior to that, it was celebrated, but not with maybe all the bravado mm -hmm. that uh, we've experienced in the last several um, generations. I was reading recently that at very various times, both in English and in American history, uh, it was either outlawed uh, or not celebrated at all by you know puritanical type uh, Christians, because they they had the mindset, well, if it's not 
expressly commanded in scripture, then we shouldn't be doing it. And I'm not a fan of that type of cultural regulation. I'm, I'm not a fan of the mindset that unless the scripture tells us to do something, we can't do it. If the scripture tells us not to do something, we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But to argue that, well, because the word of God doesn't explicitly command it, uh, we shouldn't be doing it. Well, that opens up a whole can of worms. There's a lot of things the scriptures don't expressly command, whether it's birthdays, anniversaries, the way we do weddings, vows at weddings mm-hmm. even. Mm-hmm. These are not bad things, but they're not commanded in the word of God. So I think it's a little bit legalistic in all, in all uh, honesty for people to argue that we shouldn't be celebrating because it wasn't celebrated by early Christians. I think it is an option. It's a matter of conscience, and there's many benefits and values to it, which we should leverage for the purposes of of kingdom expansion and kingdom proclamation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a question that many people ask is asking uh, about the date. How did we arrive at December 25th? Do we know that Jesus was born December 25th, or... How do we know? So no, we do not know the specific day that Jesus was born. And there's even debate over what season of the year he was born in. But there is some logic as to why December 25th was selected. So I want to, first of all, comment, uh, make this comment. There, there are some that have claimed that the reason why December 25th was chosen is that it was an attempt by earlier Christians to usurp a celebration that landed on that day, on December 25th, to worship the sun god. So the ancient pagans worshiped the sun god on December 25th, and the Christians have sort of morphed that worship of the sun god into the worship of God the sun. And therefore, by that logic, somehow we should steer clear of it. Mm. How that logic stands up, I I cannot actually tell. I've never understood that. Because even if the date was somehow selected in antiquity to usurp uh, formerly pagan celebrations, I, 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 I fail to see how that matters for our purposes because, or in some way highlights or gives credence to paganism. If, if anything, even if Christianity chose to identify December 25th to Christianize a festival that was previously dedicated to the sun god, wouldn't that demonstrate Christianity's triumph mm-hmm. over paganism? It would seem to me that it would. And why would we not want to Christianize? And what I mean by that is bring Christ into every celebration and into every cultural event to, in, in a sense, redeem it. So mm-hmm. even if it was true that early Christians selected December 25th to usurp sun god worship, great. We've now Christianized a, a previously pagan event. We've we've gotten rid of its pagan origins, and we've used it now. We're, we've been using it now for generations to promote the story of the incarnation, which would be a good thing. But we, uh, in saying all of that, I, I think it's it's a little bit ambiguous historically to even suggest that that that, that it's true that Christians mm-hmm. picked that date. There's probably a better reason for it. Now, logically, and again, we just don't know, but logically, it could be true that Constantine selected that day to stamp out sun god worship and and therefore assign Christmas to that date. But I think there's uh, historical evidence that there's uh, maybe a better reason why December the 25th was uh, chosen. 
So whether this is true or not, it's it's just p- part of the package. And, and that is that we know from history that many early Christians uh, believed that Jesus Christ was crucified on the same day that he was conceived years and years and years later. And the date that they typically assigned for that was March the 25th. Called They called it, and even in many Christian traditions today, they call it Annunciation Day, mm-hmm. the Feast of the Annunciation. So they, they tie the, the celebration of uh, and commemoration of Easter on the, on the, the calendar to the day of his uh, holy conception in, in the Virgin Mary. And because typically that day is assigned as March the 25th, you add nine months to it and you end up roughly with December 25th. So this is this became, as best as I understand it, one of the main reasons why December 25th was originally selected because it was nine months after Annunciation Day or mm-hmm. the time within which we also celebrate Easter. Now, by the way, uh, Easter... Unlike Christmas, the date varies from year to year. So d- March the 25th is the the uh, the approximate time. You could even say maybe the official time when Easter should be celebrated. But historically, they would vary the date anywhere between March the 22nd and April the 25th. So we got this whole month from March the 22nd to April 25th. And depending on the year, Easter can land anywhere in, in that um, month span. The reason for that is it depends on the moon, the Paschal full moon. And the reason why they select uh, Easter, the, the the official date of Easter differently year by year is because they're looking for a time that maximizes sunlight. Mm-hmm. Sunlight being symbolic of new birth and resurrection and, and these sorts of things. So um, I would summarize my response with um, three statements. No, we're not, we're not commanded to um, celebrate Christmas, and nor are we forbidden to celebrate Christmas. Uh, secondly, we cannot be dogmatic on the date, but there's some sense to it, I suppose, to follow Christian tradition and pick December 25th, if it's roughly nine months after Easter, and the reason why Easter lands on the, the the day or the period within which it lands is because of early Christian belief in mm-hmm. the timing of the conception of Christ. Third, if in good conscience, you cannot celebrate the Lord's incarnation on December the 25th, no problem. Don't celebrate it on December the 25th. But don't judge those that do. Mm-hmm. So we should neither judge those that do not, and nor should we judge those that do. It really is a matter of conscience. There's nothing biblical or unbiblical, specifically Christian or anti-Christian, about identifying a day in the year where we set aside to commemorate the um, baby in the manger. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things would transfer over then to Easter as well, likely Easter. Sometimes I get feedback about Easter because Easter itself, the word, is not as Christian as Christmas, Christmas. Um, yeah, we'll talk so. about this maybe in a bit, but days of the week, months of the year, 
a lot of the language we use actually has pagan origins, but rather than shying away from it or recreating our own vocabulary, I think it's better to redeem those. They're just letters, mm-hmm. E-A-S-T-E-R. Let's redeem them and Christianize them and make them mean something that in history they probably didn't mean. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Okay. We're on to a, a juicy topic here, uh, Santa Claus. <laughs> so okay. let's talk about Santa. What role does he play in Christmas? Well, it's very, very important for us to have Santa Claus in Christmas because without him, we wouldn't you know, have the magic of the season. Uh, we wouldn't have um, any reason to clean out our chimneys. We wouldn't have any Christmas presents under the tree. No on, milk and cookies. On Christmas. <laughs> I wouldn't have, um, I mean, Santa wouldn't have any milk and cookies. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, well, se- several Several things about Santa. So Santa Claus, all adults know uh, that Santa Claus is a fictitious figure that supposedly resides at the North Pole and delivers gifts on Christmas Eve, I guess into the wee hours of the morning to good children all over the world. So that's that's the 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 myth, right? That's the that's the story as it goes. And he he characterizes certain things that are of value to people. He characterizes happiness. He's jovial. He's he's cheerful. He has a propensity towards extreme generosity. His entire life is about giving things uh, to little children who've been naughty or nice. So he's a fictitious figure. We know that. But there are reasons why he has come into the mythology of Western peoples, especially Christianized peoples. His person actually has vestiges in a historical figure by the name of Nicholas, who later was called Saint Nicholas. By the way, in the Roman church, there's a formal process of venerating and declaring people to be saints based upon their Christian conduct and their ability to perform miracles and they're recognized after they're dead. In biblical orthodoxy, you're a saint when you become a believer, mm-hmm. when you're born again and, and um, justified by by God's grace. But borrowing language from, I guess, the Roman church, we'll just call him Saint Nicholas for our purposes. And the person of Santa Claus has vestiges of Saint Nicholas. In fact, you can kind of hear... Santa Claus in the word saint, Saint Santa, Nicholas Claus. So Santa Claus or Santa Nicholas. I think the Dutch call it Sinterklaas. Just thinking, yeah. Uh, or something like that. I may be butchering the pronunciation. And Nicholas was a third, he lived in the third and fourth century AD. He was a Christian bishop who, uh, best as we can tell, came from a, a wealthy family. And he was very known uh, for his generosity. Interestingly, he was also uh, he's also listed as being on the list of participants in the Council of Nicaea in 325. And there are legends that he slapped a heretic by the name of Arius. Hmm. Who really knows if that happens? I've noticed... People are kind of memeing about that this time. The tough reform guys like to meme about that because they apparently they get quite a kick out of that. But uh, whether he slapped Arius or not, he was um, a well-known, influential, early Christian 
leader in the church. And where his connection comes into to children is that he was, the stories about his life indicate that he was a bit of a protector of children. He had an interest in in protecting children. And a couple stories that are that are interesting with regard to St. Nicholas, one of them is more believable than the other. But the one is that there's a legend that he uh, paid dowries for, I think it was three young girls. He would provide them with money so that they wouldn't have to be sold into a prostitution. So he generously provided their dowries over, over a period of time so that they would be able to avoid being sold into a life of, of prostitution. The second one is uh, almost assuredly legendary, but it's found its way into Christian um, oil paintings and Christian sculptures. And that is that the, the legend says that at one point he visited uh, an inn or a tavern and discovered that the owner of that inn had butchered and pickled three young boys. And uh, basically they had shown up at his inn, maybe they were lost, there's, there's different variations of the tale. Uh, he noticed they were came from wealthy families when they opened their purses to pay for something in the inn. So he butchered them and he pickled them in uh, pickle barrels. And Nicholas, either that night or at some point thereafter, came and noticed that this had happened and all three boys were resurrected from the pickle barrels to to live on. And uh, you know the, the tyrant was exposed. Um, I highly doubt that God gave him the power to resurrect three pickled boys from pickle barrels. But those stories were passed along with variation to them and caused people to to see in their mind's eye St. Nicholas as the archetype of a godly Christian protecting children. So over time, that uh, individual was venerated and celebrated. There was actually a feast called the Feast of St. Nicholas, which was originally celebrated near the beginning of December, around December the 6th. And later, I guess to, to bundle everything up, for lack of a better way of putting it, the Feast of St. Nicholas was moved to December the 25th, and therefore that's how he sort of ended up as the man of Christmas mm -hmm. and um, the legend of Santa Claus developed out of that. So mm -hmm. obviously a fictitious figure, but there's some interesting, uh, there's a bit of a historical trail of bread crumbs back to uh, an, an early Christian in the, in the third and fourth century that, you know, made a difference for Christ. And since then, people have made up a lot of other stories about his his life and exploits. Right. Yep, exactly. So there's no real Rudolph. That's that's fictitious. Then well, that too. that's um, that's questionable. Okay. Yeah, we're not <laughs> sure about great. that one. <laughs> okay. So at risk of angering parents on either side of this kind of debate, what do you do with Santa Claus and kids? Should you tell kids about Santa Claus or should you expose the, the lie? <laughs> or mm. what should you do with that? Can we just move on to the next question? Yeah, it totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know what? It's it's an interesting question because I recall probably 15 years ago, really, I, I think I was telling a joke or something like that in a sermon or class, and someone got very upset. I was joking about Santa Claus and his inability to travel around the world, and you know he'd incinerate going the speed of light or whatever it might be. <laughs> I was quite taken back that a Christian would be would be upset that I was um, 
mocking the myth of of Santa Claus. Apparently, this was very near and dear to their heart. So let let me actually uh, approach this question the way we should be approaching this question, and that is theologically. Let's think for a moment about the myth of Santa and what we are communicating to children when we tell them that Santa is real. And I I want people to understand that we're not judging your motives as parents. If you've told your kids about Santa historically, we're not judging your motives. We're not saying you're you're bad people, but we're all being reformed. And it it might be time to to put the story of Santa to bed. And there's some good reasons for this because when when we tell children about myth or fairy tales or stories, there's often elements or aspects or themes in those stories and myths that shape the consciousness Mm -hmm. of a child in terms of their understanding of morality, in terms of their understanding of behavior, in terms of their understanding of who they are and who God is. So one of the main problems I see with telling kids that there's a real Santa is the fact that Santa's gift giving is actually the antithesis of gospel gift giving. Because in the Gospels, the gift of eternal life that we receive from God is unmerited and unearned. Mm -hmm. But in the the Santa myth, the gifts that Santa gives on Christmas are a result of whether you've been naughty or nice. So by by encouraging kids to be nice, to strive for moral goodness in order to receive a gift from Santa Claus, we're actually, in, in some respects... Um, presenting the the antithesis of Christmas because Christmas is about a gift that came that was unearned, mm-hmm. that was unmerited. Christ did not come for the kids that have been nice. Christ came for kids that have been naughty, yeah. and we've all been naughty. So there's a bit of a problem. You're 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 planting a, a seed of works salvation in a child's mind when you tell them, look, if you are a good little boy or a good little girl. Santa's going to come and he's going to reward you for that. And you tell them that until they're five or 10 or however old they are. And then suddenly you switch the narrative and say, actually, you can't earn your way into salvation. The The, the gift of God is completely unearned. It's completely uh, unmerited. It, it, that plays with people's minds. And for that reason alone, I think it's, you know, if you talk about Santa playfully as a myth, fine. But to present him as a fact in the minds of young children is to obscure the nature of, of God's grace. Mm-hmm. Second problem is this notion of magic that surrounds Christmas. Um, there is no magic in Christmas. Magic is very much of a pagan idea, as, as is luck. There is only worship at Christmas. We're not looking for magic. We're not looking for butterflies in the stomach. We're not looking for experiences. The point of Christmas is not this anticipation of being in your uh, plaid jammies and getting up in the morning and seeing the sparkly lights on the tree and just this the smell of food on, on the stove and the family time. Not that that stuff in and of itself is, is problematic, but I actually believe most Christians look forward to that mm-hmm. instead of worship. Literally, you go to Christmas parties and Jesus is never mentioned. Jesus, you don't, you don't pray, you don't worship, you don't sing, you don't read. This is not a Christian approach. This is not a worshipful approach. So there is no magic in Christmas. And 
what the truth of what what the myth of Santa often does is it reduces the true beauty of the event by exchanging worship for magic, by making it about something magical. Kids are excited about this fat man that's going to slide down the chimney or come through the window to provide them with gifts. There's this magical, this fairy tale. You know, how could a child? How could we possibly rob a child of that? Well, we should actually want to rob them of that. We don't want our children to look forward to magical encounters with mytho- mythological beings. We want them to experience the joy of worship with the historical Christ. Um, third, I, I don't think it's wise for a Christian to want their kids to grow up thinking that they should perform for some old man that knows when they're sleeping, that knows when you're awake, I mean, literally, you are presenting Santa as omniscient mm-hmm. and perhaps even omnipresent. And that's blasphemous because there's only one being that's omniscient and omnipresent, and that is God. So when we sing that song, he knows when you are sleeping, he knows when you're awake, you're saying, oh, he's God. Mm. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's always watching you. And I, I wouldn't want my children or grandchildren to ever grow up thinking that there's some creepy old man that's watching them when they're sleeping, uh, or that any human being has the capacity to watch them and to know when they've been naughty or nice. That's that's obscuring attributes and characteristics mm-hmm. that are reserved for God alone and applying them to a man. So I, I would never want to present myself as a father or grandfather as being all-knowing and omnipresent. It's just not true. That's That's... To present myself as all-knowing or omnipresent is to take upon myself attributes that are reserved for God alone. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about these issues as Christians and and what messages uh, we are communicating to young people when we present what is a myth and maybe even a fun fairy tale as as a fact. And then the fourth thing I, I I would say, which is probably the most common rebuttal to teaching kids about Santa, is... We're called to tell kids the truth, and I I don't see uh, there being anything especially redemptive about lying to your kids for the first five or ten years of their life before you, quote-unquote, break the news as if somehow that's going to sadden them or bring the magic of Christmas to an end. So I think if you add these four things up, that uh, Santa's gift-giving obscures the nature of uh, God's grace, Mm -hmm. that uh, it obscures and, and... mixes up the notion of worship for magic. Uh, it presents Santa as omniscient and omnipresent. I, and and then this, the idea of telling your kids the truth, I think if you add these things up, I, I would advise against treating Santa as anything more than he is, which is a playful myth. So if you're going to tell the story of Santa, tell the story as if you would read any uh, child's fable. Let them know it's a myth. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fairy tale. It's a fun story. But then the usefulness goes out of it because you can't use it to hang over your kid's head's behavior for the... Yeah. So then, <laughs> yeah. Um, so then if, if, if your parenting requires that you tell lies to get your kids to behave, then you have bigger problems mm-hmm. than, um, than Santa Claus. Um, so, I mean, maybe we could deal with that in another episode, but one other thought I want to bring, because this brings to mind the fact that there, there, there are other aspects of Christmas, Christmas trees, for example. Mm. People say, well, you know, Christmas trees are pagan. Well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I, I mean, there's, there's some historical evidence that 
uh, Christians used to decorate Christmas trees and put apples on them, which later became, became Christmas trees with glass globes, red globes. Oh, interesting. So they were sort of artificialized to commemorate or to symbolize the tree of life and associated that with the coming of Christ. So it may have Christmas Christian origins. Obviously, we know that various pagan religions over time also use trees for idol worship, but that doesn't necessarily mean a Christmas tree is that. Hmm. Um, so so I, I would just say, rather than studying the history of every single object, well, are Christmas trees in or out? Are wreaths in or out? Is the giving Are the giving of gifts in or out? And kind of going through your list to see where their historical record is. Live in the moment and um, redeem them all. Redeem them all. Redeem every aspect of Christmas for Christ. If you put a tree up in your home, tell your kids, this symbolizes the tree of life. The, the, globe, the glass globes on it symbolize the fruit. The star on the top symbolizes the star over the manger. You can add, you can import Christian meaning into those symbols, which indeed they may have originally even had. Um, Christmas wreaths could symbolize the uh, the crown of thorns that Jesus wore. You you can import. You can, in other words, you can redeem many of these otherwise potentially uh, non Christian elements or aspects mm-hmm. of Christmas. Um, for Christ, I think that's that's a a, a beautiful thought that we can mm-hmm. redeem that which has otherwise perhaps been dedicated to foreign deities for Christ. And by the way, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we talk about the pagan, the potential pagan origins of Christmas, but but pagan origins are everywhere. So Sunday, the word Sunday was connected historically to the sun deity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monday to the moon deity. Uh, Tuesday to a Germanic war deity, Wednesday to the Norse god Odin or Woden, Thursday to the god Thor, Friday to the goddess Frigg, Saturday to the god Saturn. Same with the months of the year, January, February, March. Birthdays. Birthdays aren't Christian in origin. The, The Egyptians invented the idea of celebrating birthdays and connected them to religious rites. Wedding rings. The Egyptians, best as we can tell, invented rings because of their circular nature as a symbol of eternity that were were tied into their beliefs about eternity. Christians now, I mean, it'd be almost unheard of to go to a Christian wedding and for there not to be the giving and exchanging of rings. We've taken something that was profane and we've we've developed it into something that's sacred and meaningful. Uh, we we have taken birthdays, which aren't quote-unquote Christian in nature, and we've redeemed them to celebrate God's gift of life, to help us to count our days, to number our days. So it's the same with Christmas, same with Easter. Almost anything can be redeemed. Uh, maybe not everything, but almost everything can re- be redeemed out of culture and, in a sense, repurposed for the benefit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe the closest example of redeeming the the unclean for the clean is found in Acts 10 when unclean animals were presented to Peter. And uh, in Acts 10, Peter initially was repulsed at the idea, well, no, these meats are pagan meats. Mm-hmm. God's like, yeah, they're not anymore. 
These are no longer pagan animals. It's not like these are the pagan animals and these are the clean animals. I'm declaring all things to be clean. And there he actually says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. In other words, it's how you view it that matters. It's how you use it that matters. It's to whom it belongs that matters most. And the idea was is that God would bring about the redemption of all things through the gospel, including those things associated with pagans. So when, quote unquote, pagan meats or pagan animals were redeemed in the gospel, this is a foreshadowing of the fact that all things that are unclean will be redeemed by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in Christ, God brings all things back and declares it to be his in the first place. So December the 25th doesn't belong to the pagans. It belongs to Christ. The Christmas tree does not belong to pagans. It belongs to Christ. March 25th does not belong to the pagans. It belongs to Christ. Gifts, Gift giving does not belong to pagans. It belongs to Christ. So we can redeem many of these festivities and events for Christ. And so I, I just think that's a better way of, of, of viewing uh, all these elements and aspects of Christmas, even if they, even if it can be shown that they have pagan origins, great. Let's redeem them for Christ. Let's show the victory of Christ over that which rightly belongs to Him in the first place. Mm. One other matter that comes up, and I know Christians are concerned about, is we want to keep Christ in Christmas, obviously, to make sure it doesn't become more pagan. And so, when people see uh, Christ replaced with X Xmas. What should we do with that? How should we interpret that? So I, I'm, I am a fan of keeping Christ in Christmas. Saying Merry Christmas is more explicit than saying Happy Holidays. My English granny used to say Happy Christmas, which is kind of a combination there of maybe some of our English listeners will, will pick up on that. Um, but she was super committed to her faith. But actually, it's, it's false to say that Xmas means Xing out Christ. The origins of Xmas relate to the first letter of Christ in Greek. So the first letter of Christos in Greek is the key, the letter key, and it's basically like an elongated X. Mm -hmm. So early Christians would often use the symbol X, not to X out Christ, but to actually show their their, um, identity, their true faith, their true religion. So Xmas is not some pagan notion of Xing out Christ. That's that's a modern misinterpretation of it. Xmas is simply a shortened way of saying Christ Mass. So I when I'm typing my sermon notes, it's not uncommon for me to use short forms and I'll put Xians, Christians, or Xmas, just for the sake of brevity. There's nothing wrong with using the word Xmas. Again, my English granny always used to put Xmas. And you know she was, she was as committed to Christ as anyone else is, uh, because she would have understood that the the origins of that are. Don't let people tell you that Xmas is Xing out Christ. It's actually accentuate. It's the initial of the first initial of Christ that um, is is being shortened and summarized in that word. So it's it's completely and fully appropriate for people to use the 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 abbreviation Xmas or Xians in relationship to to the Christian faith. There's no problem with that whatsoever. Okay, good to know. Okay, kind of a second side of this podcast, we want to talk about doing Christian ministry during the Christmas season. So what are some ideas to spur our imaginations there? Well, I think it's I think most churches have Christmas Eve services or Christmas Day services depending on when December 25th shows up in a given week. And 
I'll, I'll just tell you this. It's, it's a time of the year when in an above average way, non-Christians are, they're just more willing to go to church. So I would say one of the best benefits you can do to your, uh, to leverage Christmas for um, ministry purposes is to invite your non-Christian friends to a church service, to a choral presentation, to a musical presentation at Christmas, assuming you go to an Orthodox church. You know, so there's some crazy stuff I've seen um, on on social media uh, where you know, churches are up there celebrating Santa Claus or whatever else. There's not a lot of gospel there. But assuming you go to a church that preaches the gospel, one of the best ways to leverage Christmas for ministry is to invite people to Christian worship. And even if you're thinking about non-Christian family members, maybe being strategic and when you invite them down so that it's more convenient for them to just stay an extra night or come to the Sunday worship service with you. I also think it's, um, so when I was growing up, we probably didn't put a lot of, uh, my parents wouldn't have put really any time and energy into um, making sure that family gatherings were worshipful. And we're trying to change that a little bit as a family. So we, we have an extended family gathering. We obviously pray for our meal. There's believers and non-believers that come. But w- what I want to do with my children and my grandchildren is make sure that when we gather, there's opportunities for actual ministry, not just laughing, joking around, mm-hmm. puzzling and eating turkey, but incorporating worship and testimony and prayer into Christian Christian Christmas gatherings with your family, it's so simple, but I have a suspicion that many people just don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's They get up, they open gifts, they eat a big meal, maybe they go visit a family member, but they're not actually worshiping. It's almost like they're uncomfortable worshiping together as a family, and I'd, I'd like to suggest that we need to get back to that. So parents, when your kids get up in the morning, maybe have gifts, then read read the Christmas story to them, have times of worship, have times of fellowship, integrate actual worshipful experiences into Christmas. So it's not about the magic of Christmas, but it's really about worshiping the eternal son. A third idea would be um, using social media, you know, post some Bible passages, uh, post some pictures, uh, post relevant material about Christmas, post Christmas sermons, sermon clips, uh, Christian art pertaining to Christmas on your social media. That's a good way of just reminding the world that we we are still very much interested in the public, not the mm-hmm. private, but the public celebration of Christmas. And then finally, pray. Pray that the Lord would give you unplanned opportunities. Mm-hmm. A lot of ministry opportunities aren't planned. They just kind of happen. And when we are tuned into what God is doing in the world and Focusing on how he's working in relationships, it's just a whole lot easier to um, to capitalize upon upon those opportunities that God kind of drops in our life. Mm-hmm. Now, Christmas time, obviously, it's filled with a lot of family usually, which has its, it can be a, a tremendous blessing. Sometimes it's actually filled with a lot of grief. And I know sometimes too, with the proximity of Christmas to New Year's, people are thinking about the past year the events of the past year. Maybe this is the first Christmas without a certain family member. Maybe you want to speak to the the grief side or the, the, the challenges of Christmas. I think because Christmas is positioned near the end of the year and we just naturally tend to reflect back on what has happened in the past 12 months near the end of the year in a way that we don't necessarily think about in the middle of the year. And the fact that there's a lot of family gatherings and celebrations and relationships that are rekindled and renewed and maybe some traveling, 
it's not that there's more grief that just happens to happen or more suffering that happens to happen around Christmas, but you're, I think you're right in that it, it, it seems to hurt a little bit more. Like if you've lost a loved one this past year and they're not at the Christmas table, it, it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, in a greater way at Christmas than maybe it did earlier in the month when they weren't at a family dinner. Um, if you've experienced mis- a miscarriage and you were hoping to, to be holding that little baby in your arms during that first Christmas, that, that can be very hurtful. Our own family experienced some pain many years ago when my youngest brother was catastrophically injured and brain damaged on December the 20th of all things, mm. just five days before Christmas and is, is still permanently disabled from that. And we literally ate our Christmas dinner in the hospital waiting room. And, you know, when you get to the first anniversary of that, the second anniversary and the third anniversary, you, you tend to recall that you remember, man, that, that was, um, you know, a, a painful, a painful time. And many people experience those kinds of things. So how do we respond to grief? Well, really we respond to grief in the same way at Christmas as we should be responding to it year round. And the first thing that we need to respond, uh, we need to do in response to grief is to praise God, actually. That's that's our first response. We are called to praise God when uh, life is good and when life is very painful. And, and so we must. We must be a people that are ceaselessly committed to the adoration of God, that are willing to praise him in the good and the bad. He's not a genie, so he's not a God that just shows up and blesses. God also permits and allows the suffering um, in our lives. And yet there's a test there, as there was with Job, to continue to praise him as the sovereign, benevolent, omnipotent God that he is, believing that ultimately he is going to work all things out for for our good and for his glory. So we, we cannot cease to praise God. This Christmas, there's no reason you to miss the church service at your church because you're not in the mood. You mm-hmm. suffered too much. There's there's no excuse for failing to read the incarnation narratives because you're suffering too much. If if anything, the more you've suffered, the more you should be reading, the more you should be worshiping and praising. Also spending time in the word, you know, I would commend people to the Psalms. The Psalms are very earthy. Many of the Psalms are lament Psalms or Psalms of mourning. And even if you don't know how to express your pain or your sorrow to the Lord, reading the Psalms, reading them out loud helps us to learn to do that. Um, I wrote down five. So if you're looking for lament Psalms or mourning Psalms that are very honest and relevant, I would commend to you, there are many, but uh, Psalm 6 is is a great one. Psalm 34 and Psalm 38. Uh, Psalm 44 and Psalm 130. There are others, but uh, Psalm 6, I'll say them again. Psalm 34, Psalm 38, Psalm 44, Psalm 130. When you're going through challenges in life, you're lamenting the challenges, the difficulties, you're mourning a sense of loss, get into the Psalms. Spend a lot of time in the Psalms, and you'll find yourself moving from a place of disorientation and pain to a place of orientation and and peace. Uh, Third, there's nothing wrong with grieving. There's a time to grieve. So don't feel you have to put on a plastic smile. Uh, taking time to grieve is important. Uh, but if grieving hinders your worship, here's the thing. If grieving hinders your worship, that's a problem and the enemy's winning in your life. 
So we can grieve through the tears. We can grieve through the suffering. We can grieve through the sorrow. But we, we cannot allow our grieving to uh, hinder uh, our, our worship. And then there's also, it's also very appropriate for us to remember. We don't need, when suffering happens, we're not called to, to just forget about it. We're not called to just ignore it, to pretend that that death didn't happen. It's, it's, it's fine to engage in activities and conversations to commemorate and to remember um, visiting a grave at Christmas. Nothing wrong with that. I would commend that to people. Uh, discussing your sorrow is totally fine with your loved ones mm -hmm. and allowing them to just listen and, and encourage you by their, their presence, to take time to reflect. And, you know, if, if it's overwhelming, um, it's not a bad idea to give yourself a limited period of time to say, okay, for this hour, I'm going to, I'm going to reflect on my loss, my grief. And then when the hour's up, I'm going to think about other things. And then maybe the next day I'm going to give myself another hour. That way you're not denying your pain, but you're also not allowing it to, um, you know, some of those dark thoughts to dominate mm -hmm. uh, every hour of every, every day. And the, the final thing I would advise in grief and pain and suffering, especially at Christmas, but this applies to all of life, is to invest in other people. You're not the only one that's suffering. You're not the only one that's suffering. Invest in others that are struggling also. It's a great way to channel your grief in a productive direction to be empathetic. If you've lost a child, there's many other people that have as well. Mm -hmm. If you've lost a mother or father, there's many other people that have as well. If you've had a rough year economically, there's many other people that have experienced that as well. And investing in others and blessing them, it's kind of like what goes around comes around. There's there's a, interestingly in Christian ministry, when we pour ourselves out for others, we are blessed in return. It always happens that way. Mm -hmm. So investing in others is really, really important. But don't allow it to cripple you and just to stall you out. Continue to praise the Lord, get into his word and read those lament psalms. Mm -hmm. Take time to grieve, take time to remember, and then invest in others. Those are five five things that we should um, always commit ourselves to in times of grief and sorrow, and, and especially uh, during a significant season like this when we're around family and friends and, and taking stock of what's happened over the past 12 months. Good, very good. Well, is it fair to say we can end the episode by saying Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays? Sure. Or if you're uh, in the UK, we'll say Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Happy Xmas. <laughs> happy Xmas. Excellent. Well, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We do hope you enjoy Christmas, the holidays I was going to say, but no, holidays is good holy too because Holy Day. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Something we learn each time we uh, tune in and listen. Hopefully you've been blessed by today's episode and um, really challenged to think more about how to keep Christ the center of Christmas and your worship. And uh, reminder to uh, our listeners that you can find this podcast and in a variety of formats and a variety of places, Spotify, your Apple podcasts, um, over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, our Beachhead Media is coming together. We're getting that ready and also on the pursuitofglory.org website. So please make sure to check those out, subscribe, share them out on social media. That's also another great thing you can do at Christmas time. We hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.